Israel does a lot of things that are hardly Christian. Why should Christians stand with Israel? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. It is Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. This is Michael Brown. I am delighted to be with you today to take your Jewish-related questions and to talk about Israel and the Jewish people. Here's the number to call, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. And as always, I extend a warm invitation to my critics and dissenters. This is a great day for you to call in and tell me why you differ with me on these Jewish-related points. But we're here to help in every way that we can. Our desire is more light than heat. Our desire is if we tear down error, that we replace it with truth so that you will be edified, helped, and strengthened. We do want to talk about what's happened in Israel with an unprecedented call for new elections right after the party of Benjamin Netanyahu was triumphant in the last election, a narrow margin of victory, but seem to be sure to have a coalition in the making that has fallen through. We'll talk about that and the implications, but first let's, let's talk about this larger question. Why should Christians stand with Israel? Just this week, I got an email stating that there were going to be more locations in Israel this year than ever before celebrating gay pride. So June, the big gay pride month, going back to the Stonewall riots in New York City in 1999 and major gay pride events, not just in Tel Aviv, which has overwhelmingly been voted the most gay friendly city in the world, not just in Tel Aviv, but in many other locations in Israel, there will be gay pride celebrations. Surely evangelical Christians can't stand with that, can't agree with that for sure. And then you have liberal abortion policies in Israel. How can Christians stand with that? And then you have the religious population of Israel. Let's say roughly 20 to 30 percent of the population would be religious out of that 15 percent ultra religious and ultra Orthodox Jews militantly oppose Messianic Jews. Ultra Orthodox Jews militantly oppose us sharing the gospel and winning other Jews to the faith. So you've got the religious part of Israel which may be God-fearing in many ways, which may be devoted to Torah and rabbinic traditions. And among these religious Jews, many who are tremendously tremendously sincere and devoted, and yet would militantly oppose someone like me sharing the gospel with other Jews or leading Jews to Jesus. So you've got the religious part of the population hotly opposed to the gospel. You've got the more secular part of, of the population as worldly as, as other countries, why should Christians stand with Israel? Why do I believe it's important for Christians to stand with Israel? What does it mean to stand with Israel? Uh, let me say once again, it's almost daily that I need to make this comment. You can be critical of Israel as a nation without being anti-Semitic. You can say, I personally don't think that modern Israel is a fulfillment of prophecy without being anti-Semitic. You can say, 
I have this issue with liberal Jews in America, and that does not make you anti-Semitic. I differ strongly with the belief of traditional rabbis. That does not make you anti-Semitic, okay? To be anti-Semitic is to demonize the people as a whole, to believe and propagate lies about the people as a whole, or to even demonize a portion of the people with lies that are specifically Jewish-related lies. Those are the issues, all right? For a Christian to say, I reject Judaism, that's not anti-Semitic. For a Christian to say, I'm grieved over Israel's treatment of some Palestinians, that's not anti-Semitic. To say Israel was guilty, we believe this was a war crime, and Israel should be investigated. If it's based on facts, well, then investigate. By all means, look into it. So none of this is anti-Semitic, and, and nor is it a test of your Christian faith to say, do you support the modern state of Israel or not? All right? That being said, I do believe there are strong reasons why every Christian should stand with Israel despite Israel's failings and shortcomings. Now, in the natural, when you go to Israel, hopefully you can join us in our next tour, May 11th through 20th of next year, Tour of a Lifetime. Go to our website, org, and right on the homepage, you'll see a banner for that. Find out more. Now's the time to sign up because we'll only have two buses going, so now's the time to get in on it. When you go to Israel, you'll be impressed in many, many ways. And you'll be amazed at things Israel has done for the good of the region and, and for the good of Palestinians and for the religious liberties that people do enjoy there. You'll be impressed with many things about Israel and you'll recognize how hard Israel has worked to be a place of liberty and freedom for others. All right. So you'll go there. And especially if you've been to other nations in the Middle East, you'll see in many ways that Israel stands out. So just on a purely natural level as the most democratic nation in the Middle East and as the nation that grants its inhabitants, its citizens, the most religious liberties, we should be standing with Israel. But that to me is secondary. I want to look at the spiritual reasons, okay? Because it is not because of Israel's righteousness that I call on Christians to stand with Israel. Number one, I recognize scripturally and through scriptural logic that it is God who brought the Jewish people back to the land, that there is no other natural or supernatural explanation that works other than God restored the modern state of Israel. Now, when God gave Israel the promised land the first time around, there was the mandate to exterminate the Canaanites. There was bloodshed. Bloodshed was built into the process. It was going to be a judgment on the nations that had come before that was not part of the built-in process here. In other words, the goal was not kill the Arabs, kill the Palestinians, kill the Muslims, and take the land, but rather be restored to the land peacefully and live in peaceful harmony with neighbors and become a Jewish majority in the land and then make the land beneficial for everyone there and in the surrounding nations. That would have been the goal. The fact that there have been wars fought over it that is not something that Israel desired or initiated. They have been wars of survival. That being said, I recognize that it is God who brought the Jewish people back to the land. So I am standing with his purposes, recognizing that if he scatters in anger, no one can regather. 
The United Nations cannot regather. The nations of the world cannot regather. The Jewish people themselves cannot regather. Demonic powers can't do it. The Rothschilds or whoever else you want to name can't do it. If God scatters in anger, the only way there can be a regathering is by his will. He has done it just as prophesied in Scripture. You say, yeah, yeah, but Deuteronomy 30 and other passages make clear this will only happen when Israel repents. No, not true. It will certainly happen when Israel repents. But God can choose, just as he does in Ezekiel 36, bringing the Jewish people back from the Babylonian exile, God can choose to bring Jewish people back even without repentance, for his name's sake, for his reputation's sake. He can do that if he chooses. And in this case, that is what he has chosen to do for his namesake and purpose. So that's the first thing I recognize. Therefore, I'm standing with God's purposes. Now, as a friend of Israel, if I feel Israel mistreats Palestinians, or if I differ with policies in Israel as a friend of Israel, I will speak up and speak out. I will say, I differ with this. I'm grieved over this. All right. And I'll work with believers in the land to see how we can bring about positive change. But I first recognize it's God who brought the Jewish people back. Secondly, I recognize that Satan wants to wipe out the Jewish people, that Satan wants to destroy the modern state of Israel. This is a stench in his nostrils because God said this would happen and that he would preserve his people until the end. Therefore, Satan wants to wipe it out. So I'm standing with God, recognizing his purposes, I'm standing against Satan, recognizing his purposes. Third, I recognize that through much of church history, the church has mistreated Jews in Jesus' name. The church has persecuted Jews in Jesus' name. The church has offered Jews baptism or death in Jesus' name. The church has herded Jews together in ghettos and given them yellow stars in Jesus' name. Therefore, it is imperative that Christians remove the stench of much of church history, that Christians remove the ugly and wrong things that were done by false followers of Jesus and even by some misguided true followers of Jesus, and that we demonstrate real, unconditional love and that we undo some of the anti-Semitism in church history through our deeds of kindness and love and prayer and support, while still telling Jewish people, you need Jesus to be saved. You need Jesus to be born again. Without Jesus, you are lost. We tell it to secular Jews and we tell it to religious Jews just the same. So number one, we stand with God and his purposes. Number two, we stand against Satan and his purposes. Number three, we seek to give a genuine demonstration of Christian love and compassion in light of many centuries of anti-Semitism practiced in Jesus' name. And then number four is that we recognize that a Jewish Jerusalem must welcome Jesus back. And therefore, we're not just trying to see prophecy fulfilled, because again, if you care about God, you care about justice, and that's for everybody. If you care about God, you care about the poor and the needy. That's for everybody. If you care about God, you you care about fairness. That's for everybody, all right? So it's not like we're going to stand with prophecy and against justice. No, no, we're going to stand with prophecy and with justice, all right? We're going to do both. But we recognize through numerous scriptures that a Jewish Jerusalem must welcome back the Messiah. And we recognize that's why this city is the number one most contested city in the world. 
If you're the devil, what do you want to do? If you know this to be true, that a Jewish Jerusalem will welcome Jesus back, first wipe out the Jewish people. If you can't wipe them out, keep them out of Israel. If you can't keep them out of Israel, make sure that Jerusalem is not in Jewish hands. If you can't do that, make sure Jews don't believe in Jesus. And that's why our great goal, our greatest goal, the number one goal, is to see Jewish people turn and put their faith in Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah. At the same time, we see what God is doing. We work against what Satan is doing. We work to undo the ugliness of church history and the Jewish people and demonstrate genuine love, the genuine love of Jesus. And we look for the fulfillment of God's prophetic purposes. Those are just some of the reasons that the church should stand with the nation of Israel today. Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Here we go. Welcome to our Thoroughly Jewish Thursday broadcast. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. Your Jewish-related calls and questions, 866 truth 866-348-7884 is the number to call. And we go to the phone starting in Boston. Eric, welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I, I was recently looking into, uh, I was recently looking into uh, a passage or a uh, track. I'm not sure the exact terminology, but uh, in the Talmud, um, Abu Dazarah 50B, um, there's a few references there to, a carpenter and son of a carpenter. And it seems to be in the explanatory notes, at least online, that that's a code or a reference to um, to a Torah scholar or some sort of scholar. And I was just curious if there was any connection. Do you think there's any connection between that and Jesus being called a carpenter in, in the Gospels? Um, yeah, that, that's yeah. a very interesting question. So uh, let me let me take a moment just to uh, to break things down for folks. OK, Um so to answer your question, to my knowledge, there's no connection. All right. And, and I, w- I would have to, now I've never looked into it in depth, to be honest, but to my knowledge, there's no connection that when Jesus is referred to as, as a carpenter or his father is a carpenter, that's just a description of what he did as a livelihood. And of course it was a common profession at that time and etc. So I don't want to read something into that. That's, that's not merited. The other thing is, when we speak of the Talmud, we're speaking of a collection of, of literature and oral traditions that were written down that span many centuries, and many of them are written in Babylon several hundred years after the time of the New Testament. So it may not even be relevant. In other words, it, it may be a, a custom or a phrase or a concept that comes hundreds of years after the time of Jesus. So that all has to be sorted out. So there are six orders in the Talmud, so it's divided into six different large divisions. And then within that, there are tractates. Uh, so the total of 63 tractates, they don't all get covered within the Talmud. And Avodah Zarah is a tractate dealing with idolatrous worship. All right. So um, 
in, in uh, if, if you're if you're looking online, are you looking on the Safaria website or somewhere else? Yeah, exactly. Safaria website. Right. So, folks, if if you want to find virtually all major Jewish literature online for free, this is an, a massive breakthrough website. It is safaria.org. S e f a r i a safaria.org. So if you're reading the Bible, you've got in Hebrew with a, a Jewish translation, but then if you click on the verse number or on the actual verse on your phone, it'll then say, hey, here are commentaries. And a lot of it's only in Hebrew and Aramaic, but more and more of it is, is being uh, translated, in fact. So uh, let me just grab uh, Avodah and take a look at that specific passage and see if there's anything more that I can, I can get from it. The translation that you have there is the translation of Adin Steinschaltz. So he's one of the leading Jewish teachers of the era. And uh, what you're getting there, when you're looking at it, you'll see bold print and then regular print. So in the, the translation of the Talmud. All right. And the bold print is the words of the Talmud itself, which are very, very concise, hence the expanded translation. But this is, this is very reliable uh, in terms of if you want to understand a traditional Jewish approach, this is it. Right, so right at the beginning of, of Avodah Zarah, uh, neither a carpenter nor a son of a carpenter resolved, that is, no one can resolve the difficulty in hearing this, nor a Torah scroll, not even a scholar who is the son of a scholar. Yes, yeah, so the Aramaic word there that's being used, uh, it, it, of course, that's, that's going to be different than, than the Greek word that's used in the New Testament for carpenter. I, I honestly am not aware of this going back to New Testament times where this would be just an idiom for, uh, for a, a Torah scholar. And there's no evidence that, that Yeshua's father was a Torah scholar or that he was considered a Torah scholar, meaning one that was learned in, in rabbinic tradition. Uh, what was always stunning people was, you know, where did he get this wisdom? He's just the son of a carpenter. So it really wouldn't make sense that that, that was an idiom for how, how is he so smart? He's the son of a smart guy. It, it wouldn't work. So I, I have to see you know, when this idiom began. But again, to the best of my knowledge, uh, the, answer, the answer is no to the question. But it's a great question. I, I appreciate it very much, sir. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks. All right, thanks. 866-3-Fortress. By the way, I just took a couple extra minutes because it's Thoroughly Jewish Thursday to, to give you a bit more background. Oh, one, one thing quickly. I mentioned this the other day, but since it's Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, I'll mention it again. I've had people saying, you're not a Christian because you still say you're Jewish, right? So we dismiss that. Any more than you can't be a Christian if I still say I'm a male, right? So we just, no, okay, silly. Anyway, uh, and then, well, you must renounce the Talmud to prove your faith. Well, what do you mean renounce the Talmud? Do you mean say I don't submit to Talmudic authority? Yeah, I do not. Do you mean to say I do not believe the Talmud is in any way divinely inspired? Yeah, I do not. Do you mean to say that I differ with rabbinic interpretation of Scripture and feel that the Talmud often misinterprets or, or misuses the Hebrew Scriptures? Yeah, count me in on all that. Do you mean that the Talmud encourages pedophilia? No, it doesn't. It, it doesn't. So I'm not going to say that it does, okay? And, and the fact that I will not support a lie about the Talmud to prove my faith in Jesus, since when does supporting a lie prove that you're a follower of the truth. Wow. What's in people's heads? Strange, isn't it? 866-34-TRUTH. 
Let's go to Greenville, South Carolina. David, welcome to the line of fire. Well, shalom, brother. How are you doing? I'm blessed, man. Shalom to you. Thank you. Uh, I am doing fine. I'm one of your Patreon guys, uh, by the way, and it's a Sweet. joy for me to be supporting somebody like you who has just, the, your scholarship is outstanding. Uh, you are so gracious to everybody, <laughs> even people like me who have limited understanding. You're always very polite, and I appreciate that. By the way, your your uh, appearance, I don't know when it was, a couple of years ago at Hebrew University when the young lady was asking you questions, uh, you handled that as well as I think anybody could have done uh, on the face of the earth. You were, you, you were just terrific. I watch all your videos and tell my Sunday school class about you and everything. Sweet. I have a real quick question. If you would turn to Genesis one one in your in your Hebrew, there's I got a, it. I got it in my head. That's an easy one. Yeah. Okay. There's there's a guy online who is uh, uh, supposedly a PhD, and I won't mention his name, but he argues that Barah, excuse me, first of all Barah, uh, which sh- should be the word create, he says that that word really very ambiguous about whether or not it means out of nothing or carries that kind of that kind of um, um, uh, sort of meaning that ex nihilo would give us. Certainly, you pick it up in Hebrews, but it would be it would be good, I think, if if um, uh, you know you could. I, I tried doing a, a Bible study, that is a word study from out of Strong's and Young's on uh, every time you see the word Barah, as opposed to Asah, and uh, mm-hmm. it seems like it is talking about creation. From a, a, a kind of uh, nothing, a, a creative kind of act that would not be in the human dimension. What, do, first of all, do you have that? And then I've got a, a question about uh, the, the very first word that is is used that this guy comments um, alters the the meaning significantly. Yeah. So uh, as for the verb bara, uh, it is different from asa, which is to make or to do. And asa, you could you could make something out of something, but bara when it's, when it's God's activity, well, first you don't have human beings with bara. You, you have to have it in a different form of the verb, but in the simple form of the verb, you don't have human beings with it. And it, it is something that gives the, the nuance or understanding of out of nothing, the whole idea of creatio ex nihilo creation out of nothing. Okay. So that's a certain theological concept or scientific concept that is not necessarily going to be inherent in specific words uh, that, or, or that, that concept is always there. But you don't have the use of bara where you've got raw material. For example, like yatsar, to form, and the potter is the yotzer. So the, the, that man is formed out of the dust of the ground. You don't use bara for that. You, you wouldn't do it. Or, for example, as, as I just scroll on, on concordance references, uh, so God creates the heavens and the earth. There's no instance of, of any substance that's there. There's no specific nuance of pointing in, in, in that in, in any direction. When God's going to do marvels that haven't been done before, or, for example, in Numbers, the 16th chapter, if the Lord brings about something unprecedented, all right, if the Lord does something entirely new, and, and what that is in, in Hebrew is uh, if uh, literally a creation he creates, and translators have to say does something new because it's unprecedented. So certainly 
the weight of the evidence is to translate with create. And what is create here? If I say in English to create, is there one word in English that in and of itself must mean creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing? Well, the closest word to it is create, but you still have to define it and explain it a little bit. So the same with Hebrew, other languages. It doesn't mean that within that word, that full concept is there, but does it presume creation out of nothing? Does it speak consistently of God doing this or speak consistently of something coming without a a substance you're working with in the first place? Yes, absolutely. So it's the perfect word for it. And I see no reason to downplay the emphasis on creation out of nothing. All right, stay right here, David. We'll get to your other question on the other side of the break. James and Phoenix, always with good Hebrew questions. So we'll wait for that. Jewish-related calls coming your way, and then my comments on what's happening in Israel with a call for new elections. Stay right here. Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. This is Michael Brown. I'm looking down at the Klein's Hebrew Lexicon, uh, Dictionary of Classical Hebrew, major eight-volume study by contemporary scholars. Uh, and what's interesting, when we look at bara, to create, you do have the word used, the verb used in other Semitic languages where it can mean to shape or to form. But that does not mean that's how it's used in Hebrew, especially when you see the fact that the subject involved with bara, with creating, is God throughout the Hebrew Bible. That tells you something of great, great importance. Welcome to the broadcast. Hey, right now, right now, I'm looking at our Patreon page, and we have our first 82 patrons. We just started beginning of May, first week of May. So our first 82 patrons, one of whom is on hold with a question for me, a Hebrew question. If you've got a Jewish-related question, 866-34-TRUTH, that's the number to call on this Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, and I am Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. We're going to be talking about the Israeli elections shortly as well, along with taking your calls. But I want to encourage you to become a Patreon patron today. You say, well, what's in it for me? And how do I do it? Well, first, what's in it for you is is you share in the great blessing and reward that we share in reaching people with messages of truth, life-changing video and media on a daily basis. And, And friends, we're called to do stuff that a lot of ministries are not called to. And, and we're called to go to a lot of places and be in a lot of situations that many of us aren't called to. And that means that, that we need to get a special support group around us because together we're making a real, real difference. So you can put aside a few cents a day, 37 cents a day, right? So that's $10 or more per month. You become a Patreon full-level partner, which means not only do you play a role in every single radio broadcast that we're putting out online, on every single video that we produce, you play a role in it. Literally, you play a role in it. You do. But not only that, you're also enabling us to produce more material, more cutting-edge material of great, great importance for the body today when there's so much confusion. 
and you benefit as well by getting two bonus videos every single week, exclusive content for you. Bonus videos where I'm doing a 25, 30 minute teaching that'll really edify you. And then a full one hour YouTube chat answering questions. That's yours available exclusively there. So go to patreon.com forward slash ask Dr. Brown, ASK Dr. Brown. Ultimately, we'd like to have about a thousand patrons that will really enable us to do so much more that we want to, to serve you, to minister to you. 866-34-TRUTH. All right. So David in Greenville, back to you, sir. You had a follow-up question to Genesis 1-1. Yes, sir. I have a quick follow-up question. And by the way, your weekly, the two weekly bonuses that come are terrific. They're, they really are superior. I'd, I'd, I'd buy in if that's all I got, but I'm thinking about maybe taking the trip with you to Israel. I've been there once, and I'd love to go back again. Oh, yeah, man, listen, it is, it's a life changer. I have to admit that my team had to twist my arm to get me to do an Israel tour. Cause I'm thinking if I go to Israel, I just want to minister. I don't, I don't want to be doing a tour. I just want to minister, but the tours have been so wonderful. People have been so impacted and I love getting to spend time with folks. And then every night I'm doing ministry. We're doing Q and a, I'm, I'm sharing my heart about things. We're doing a live radio broadcast. So every night we're getting the minister and then you got the tour by day. And yeah, so it's May 11th to 20th folks info on our website. And, and by the way, uh, the Klein's Dictionary of Classical Hebrew has no problem fundamentally defining bara with one word, create. So we know all the cognate evidence. We know all the evidence from other texts, etc. But to define it with create, with the understanding that it's created, creation out of nothing, when it's being spoken of creation of the universe, it's a very legitimate and right way to translate the Hebrew. So your follow-up question. That, that, that was very helpful on, on that word. Now let's go back to the beginning word, the very first word in the Bible, where we've got bara uh, a sheet. Um, the, the B, the bet, uh, would, would indicate, I think it's an inseparable preposition because it's, it should just say in. That, that simply means in like the Lamed would be two. All right. It, first of all, do you agree with that? Yeah. It's, that it's interpretation in, right. in, the, in the beginning. Right, right. Race now, sheet, the, the race sheet means right. Race sheet means beginning or mm-hmm. principle or etc. Yeah. It's normally the beginning of right. something, but yeah. So it's it's race sheet, which would be by way of beginning or in a beginning or in the beginning. Jewish translators normally translate a little different. When God began is how they translate it. But yeah, race sheet is the noun, well, and the bait yeah, is the preposition. Exists. Right. All right, that's where I wanted to go, because the guy that was this Christian talker, this Christian YouTube guy, was saying he was trying to correct the in the beginning God created. He wanted to make it when God was in the process of creating and his spirit was hovering over the deep uh, and 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 uh, uh, darkness was upon the face yeah. of the earth and the waters. Then, yeah, by, by, the, by the way, there's a, creation, right. Yeah, let, let me just say this. Um, you can freely say who the person was because what they're saying is not like some heretical or bizarre oh, thing. So, okay. it's, uh, my, my, Michael, Dr. Michael Heiser is his yeah. name. Yeah. And, so, uh, yeah, he, Dr. Heiser's Dr. Heiser is a colleague and friend, and an or, an Orthodox uh, believer in in the truth of Scripture and in God being Creator. So, it it is a constant debate among scholars and Bible translators. Christian translations almost unanimously translate with in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void, etc. Almost universally translate in that way. 
The ancient versions, interestingly, the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation, translates with in the beginning, literally in beginning, but translates the way that we would find the traditional Christian way. The Targum, the uh, ancient Aramaic paraphrase translation, also translates with in the beginning. So, and the Latin translation, which is a few hundred years after the New Testament, the Vulgate, also translates. So in Aramaic, So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In, in the Greek Septuagint, So in the beginning, God created. In the Latin, So in the beginning, God created. They all read it that way. John 1, 1, which is playing on the creation account, seems to read it and understand it that way. You could argue that the Hebrew should be understood as in the beginning of God's creating the heaven and the earth, when the earth was with formless and void, etc., etc., then God said, let there be light. But elsewhere, we know that Scripture tells us that God created the universe in six days, right? So it's making a statement about God doing this overall act. And others have said that for the Hebrew to start that way is far too complex and, and, and not the way it would open up. But there remains a scholarly debate. I could get into way more detail. By the time I'm done, everyone would be like, either snoozing or turning something else on because I'd lose everybody. But you can make a strong case for translating with in the beginning. Now, let me just mention one other thing so you can check this out for yourself. Type in New English Translation, okay, the NET, the N-E-T, all right? And, or just go to netbible.com. And when you go there, uh, you can, uh, uh, let's just see here, read, okay, yep. So let's go to NETBible and let's go to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created and you will find detailed notes. So go to netbible.org, actually, netbible.org. Click on read, uh, or just netbible.org itself will get you there. You'll find detailed notes that will break down all of this. In the beginning, God created notes. Some you'll understand, some will lose you. But that's where you want to go for more info. So I appreciate Dr. Heiser. We could have a scholarly debate about this. There are arguments both ways, but you can make a strong case for, a strong case for, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the traditional way that we're used to seeing it in translation. Hey, thank you, David. Much appreciated. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to our buddy James in Phoenix. How's the weather there, man? Uh, it's very hot. Yeah, I, I figured it would be. It's, it's hot in North Carolina, so I figured it's got to be hot in Phoenix. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so thanks for taking my call again. Uh, I had a question, uh, translation question on uh, Judges chapter 8, verse 1. Uh-huh. Uh, I was looking at that in the Hebrew. It says, Vayomeru uh, Elav Ish Ephraim. And when I translate that, I translate it as, and, and they said unto him, comma, man of Ephraim. But when I look at all the other, every English translation, they all translate it as, and the man of Ephraim said unto him. I'm trying to figure out what's what am I missing here, because it looks like... Yeah, no, so, yeah. so even if what, you look in the second verse, it translates the same way I would translate it. Yeah, so so what's what's throwing you is that it's Ish Ephraim, which is literally a man of Ephraim. So, but but Yomru is, and they said right 
to him. So first you have to look in context and in context, it's the men of Ephraim who are speaking to an individual. So that's, that's the first thing. All right. Um, so they, they, the ends of, uh, 725, they brought the heads of Oreb and Zev to Gideon across the border. And now they said to him, by Yumri Love, they said to him, right, who? Namely, the men of Ephraim. So Ish Ephraim, men of Ephraim, it stands for the men of Ephraim, as if it was plural. Okay, it's, you know, each man of Ephraim. So the men of Ephraim. So it's by Yumri Love. And they said to him, right, so him is Gideon. Who? Who said it? The men of Ephraim. So it's kind of parenthetical. Um, and and uh, because you put the verb first in, in Hebrew in this case, all right, um, and, and then you're going to follow it with the subject, so this is perfectly normal. If it had said on uh, Shea Ephraim, the men of Ephraim, then it would have seemed more natural. But because it said Ish Ephraim, man of Ephraim, you saw oh, that's singular. So they said to him, a man of Ephraim, but no, they said to him, namely, the men of Ephraim said to Gideon, etc. Make sense? Uh, yeah, because I, I, I spoke to another person that he does with like Hebrew stuff, and he was telling me like that was like a, a, a Masoretic error that it should have said Anashim Ephraim instead of Ish Ephraim. No, but there, there's no, yeah, on, on, Shea, on Shea Ephraim. But there, there's no need for that. In, in other words, because it's saying each one, a man of Ephraim representing. For for example, in ah, in Isaiah here, look at Isaiah fifty three six. Right, Kulanu, all of us, Kulanu Katsonta, you know, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Ish the darko paninu, a man to his way we have turned. So it's representative man meaning us people. Isaiah fifty three six. You'll see similar grammar there. All right, back with more calls at an election in Israel update. Stay tuned. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks. Welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. You know, I'm, I'm just looking at the YouTube chat. Andreas, if you're listening, yeah, you are spouting the standard anti-Semitic libels, the standard things without substance, without support. You're taking one person, a Jewish person or Jewish people who may stand against Christian values and demonizing the entire Jewish population with, I, I wish you'd call into the show, sir. 866 Truth. Yeah, but but for others in the YouTube chat, uh, what here, a, a line from Andrus, almost every country they've been in because of their predatory way of climbing to places of influence like only most media in a country, etc. And this is where they get expelled from countries. Standard anti-Semitic lies. So for those that want a little education, let educate be educated by Andreas in what anti-Semites say and believe, because he's putting out the classic junk right here. I wonder why they don't call the show argue their point so odd and thanks for your contributions on our youtube chat by the way if you want if you're watching on youtube right at the bottom of the chat box there's a dollar sign click on it your donation of any kind helps us with these very 
broadcast. Yeah, Kai, I know you invite people to call in. Uh, I mean, you, you know, you're trashing certain Christian beliefs. I can help you if you if you want help. I know folks just troll. And to to those that know the Lord and know the truth, ignore the trolls. Don't get caught up in petty stuff with them. But those that are genuinely seeking, we're happy to help. We're happy to patiently teach and explain. Hey, there's a call from Enrique, uh, Enrique in Detroit. I've answered this question over again. So, sir, I'm just going to answer this with you listening uh, online right now. But the, the Hebrew word yom in Genesis 1 is no different than the English word for day. Okay? Day can specify 24 hours. Day can be day versus night. Day can be a general period of time, the day of the Lord. All right? So it, it's used in numerous different ways. Even in Genesis 1, it's used for daytime versus nighttime. It's used for a 24-hour period. And then it's Genesis 2, biom, which means when. All right? And then we have the reminder in Psalm 90, 2 Peter 3, that one day with the Lord is like a thousand years. What's the day of the Lord? Etc. So I do not make a determination about creation and the length of creation based on the Hebrew word for yom. All right, others argue in that way. I don't. You could argue based on the genealogies about the length, the age of the earth and other things like that, etc. But the, the word itself is no different than the English word day, which can be used in different ways. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. So if, if you missed what's happened in Israel, I wrote an article right after the elections, uh, April 10th. So it was five things you need to know about the Israeli elections, all right? And for each of you donating during the show, I do see your gifts coming in, and thank you. We appreciate it. We don't talk much about money on the line of fire, so we, we appreciate all help of all kinds and all sides. Thanks so much. Uh, Inky Spectre, that's a fun name there. Okay, so I, I posted this article, Five Things You Need to Know About the Israeli Elections, back on April 10th. And if you haven't read it, it's on our website, AskDrBrown.org, just type in Israeli elections or elections, and you'll find it. it. It seemed that it would be easy for Likud, the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's party, to form a coalition. Because remember, you have 120 seats in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. You need a coalition of 61. You have many, many, many different parties running. And in, in this case, uh, what was the total number I, I, uh, of parties that, that, that ran, there were 40, par- 40, 40 parties that ran overall, and at least 11 parties won a minimum of 3.25% of the vote, which then gives them at least four seats in the Israeli parliament, all right? So let's say your party gets 31 seats and your competitor gets 30. Well, can you get to 61? Can you form a coalition? So there seemed to be several different ways for Netanyahu to do this. Many Messianic Jews would be pleased that he was reelected. So Jewish believers in Israel would be pleased that he was reelected because he's strong on security and, and strong on, on, on preserving Israel's strength in the region. On the flip side, in order to do it, he'd have to make coalitions with the ultra-Orthodox parties who then work against Messianic Jews in the land. They would operate the Ministry of Interior. They would try to restrict Messianic Jews coming in the land. They would even open a door for persecution on some level against Messianic Jews in the land, maybe job-related or buying a building or things like that. 
So that's the concern that Netanyahu would have to make deals with these groups and the bulk of the nation doesn't support the goals of these groups, which would also exempt ultra-Orthodox Jews from serving in the military, etc. So it, there looked to be a clear path, and, or even several possible paths, and then the Avigdor Lieberman party uh, refused to go along with the coalition, and rather than collapse the government so that someone else could say, okay, let us try, let us try to form a coalition, Instead, Netanyahu has called for new elections. This is unprecedented to have these elections called for so quickly after the last ones. Could you imagine in America, we have elections and, and, and let's just say 2018 instead of 2020, we're going to have national elections and then you can't form a government. So six months later, you have another election. I mean, you know how traumatic and intense this is. So he's called for another set of elections. I don't know what is best. Yeah, I mean, who does know ultimately except for God? Because something that looks terrible can end up being for good. We could end up with the worst possible president imaginable as evangelical Christians, as followers of Jesus, the worst possible president imaginable, and that could get us praying and bring national revival, which would bring a turn in the nation and a better president, or maybe the president gets saved. So you don't know. But there are always mixed feelings. Unless Netanyahu can form a coalition if he instead was going to work with the party that came in second and the two of them just bam, bam, there you go. You have your coalition government. So they each have to have compromise. That would have been amazing. And then there would not have been special rights that the ultra Orthodox would have and special pull that they would have. That could have been amazing, but obviously that didn't happen. So just pray God, your very best for Israel. And, and, and that does not just mean national security. It means religious liberty and in particular for Jewish believers in the land. Lord, your very best for Israel. 866-34-TRUTH. And we go to Austin in Jacksonville, Tennessee. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, appreciate it for having me on, man. Sure thing. Um, I, so I was talking to someone, uh, asking a question the other day, and, and they brought up the Mesopotamian tablets, the... Uh, Sumerian, Akkadian, and Babylonian tablets, and how they predate the the story. I guess this theory is that that basically Christianity bit off of that. I just wanted to ask your take on that, and if you think there's any validity in the idea that it's a, a reference of the story of the fallen angels. Yeah. So, uh, my friend Michael Heiser, who was referenced, we've never met face to face. Hopefully, we will, but we we've talked and, and interacted a number of times. Uh, Dr. Heiser, in his book, Reversing Hermon, H-E-R-M-O-N, he deals with this, and he points to these tablets as an evangelical Old Testament scholar. Uh, I just typed in, what did I type in? I typed in Enoch, Fallen Angels, Akkadian Tablets, all right? And the first thing that came up was Fallen Angels, Anunnaki, Nephilim, Watchers, the Shining Ones from Ancient Mesopotamia. So the the information is, is readily available in terms of speculation as to what's out there. So let me give you the short answer. I do not believe for a split second that the Bible simply borrowed pagan myths or simply incorporated pagan myths, that the Bible incorporated the, the Babylonian creation account or that the Bible just incorporated the Babylonian flood accounts or the Bible incorporated some of these myths about fallen angels, etc. 
or that the Bible incorporated some of the myths from the Ugaritic tablets, which were composed roughly in the time of, of Moses, you could say, from, from northern Canaan. No, I don't believe that. This is my field of academic study. My Ph.D. is in Near Eastern languages and literature. So these are the very things we would read. In other words, we would study these tablets in, in, in the original, and we would try to understand the meaning, etc. What you do have, though, is many parallel traditions, and then what the Bible says shines like light out of darkness. In fact, Dr. Heiser would even say that the Bible is giving you the real account, is setting the record straight. So I have no problem believing. In fact, I do believe that the ancient religions, especially the ancient Semitic-based religions and, and those in that same region, Sumerians not being Semitic peoples, that, that they reflect a lot of these spiritual realities, that there were these cosmic demonic powers, that there was some type of horrific fall, including falling of, of heavenly ones or shining ones or things like that. I've, I've no problem believing that, but they then incorporated it into their idolatrous views. They then translated it in the context of idolatry, whereas the Bible says, no, 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 no. This is what really happened. Yeah, there was a fall, but this is what really happened. And when you read the ancient creation accounts, like Enuma Elish, uh, ancient Mesopotamian creation account, or, or some of these or Egyptian creation accounts, and then compare that with Genesis 1, you think, my God, one God, monotheism, lofty, transcendent, versus all these idle gods, petty, fighting with each other, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Same with Genesis 6. That gives us the real story. But Michael Heiser's book, Reversing Hermon, will be very helpful in that respect. All right, friends, we're out of here. Back with your questions tomorrow.